Take your Bibles out and turn with me, if you would please, to Colossians chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at the very last passage in chapter 1, a passage about ministry. We're going to take a closer look this morning at authentic Christian ministry, and that'll be the topic of our message today. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Chapter 1, verse 24 of Colossians. Again, a closer look at authentic Christian ministry. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his ministry, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Father, you said that uh, you would be our teacher. Jesus said that he would send the Holy Spirit who would be our, our counselor, our helper, our teacher. And that he would help us to understand those things that you would have us to know. And I pray this morning that he indeed would be our teacher as we look at ministry. God, all I can do is speak to ears. I pray that your spirit would speak to hearts. Lord, remind us that we are to die daily and pick up our cross and follow after you. May each of us today look at our own lives, our own calling our own sense of ministry. And it is our prayer that we would be found faithful. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want you to think with me a moment about that occasion in, Mark, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus had taken his disciples away to Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was an area of the country back then that was known for a certain form of paganism. And in a place like Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples a very important question. He said, whom do men say that the Son of Man is? And you'll remember their answer. They said, some say that you are John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Others that you are Elijah. Others that you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus confronted them and he said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? 
And of course, Peter stepped forward and made that great declaration of faith. And he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus pronounced a blessing on him. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ promised to build his church. Folks, what a great blessing to be a part of an organization today on the face of the earth that Jesus Christ promised that he would build and he would bless. He didn't say that about anything else on the face of the earth, but he did say it about his church. He said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And then in 1 Timothy chapter uh, 3, Paul says to Timothy that the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. And then again in Romans 12, Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, we are individually members one of another. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of the church and the ministry of the church. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but we're to meet together and stir one another up to love and good deeds and all the more as we see the day approaching. We're to be involved in the church. For all of the weaknesses and shortcomings that the church has today, it is still His church. We are His bride and His body. And it's a blessing to be a part of a local church. Amen? Now as we come to Colossians chapter 1 verse 24, we see one of the great passages in the New Testament describing for us what authentic Christian ministry looks like. The Apostle Paul is giving a description of his own life and his own calling to the ministry. You know, we live in a day and age where there are many ideas about the ministry, many philosophies of the ministry, and you have people chasing all kinds of fads. But what does the New Testament say about Christian ministry? That's what we ought to be concerned with. Now in this passage we see one of the New Testament models of authentic Christian ministry. It's not the only place in the New Testament where this is described. But it is a key passage nonetheless. What we see here are the marks of authentic Christian ministry. You and I can take this passage and we can lay it down across our lives, if you will, as a template. And we can ask ourselves, how do we measure up? Are we living our lives the way the Apostle Paul said here that he was living his life? Now before we get into this passage in greater detail, I want to remind you of the context. Paul has just written one of the greatest passages in the Bible on Christology, describing the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Go back to verse 15 with me because I want you to see that again. He says in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What a marvelous statement about Jesus Christ. There is no one like him. He is very God, a very God. He's the second member of the Trinity or of the Godhead, the Trinity. It is through Christ that we see more clearly what God the Father is like. And it is through Christ that God the Father has reconciled a lost world to himself. Christ is the head of the church. And so any ministry that honors God ought to be about Jesus Christ. Jesus ought to be the subject of our ministry. If your life and your ministry is not about Jesus Christ, then we just need to cut out the lights and lock the door and go home. Amen? We are to be all about Jesus Now, not only is Jesus Christ the subject of ministry, but we see here also that he's the source of ministry. Paul says, essentially, I do what I do by the power of Christ working in me. And so Christ is both the subject and the source of ministry. Now, with that said, what kind of ministry is pleasing to Jesus Christ? Let's look at that more fully this morning. And Paul's going to give us three characteristics of his ministry. And he's going to point out that the same is true for us. The ministry we have involves stewardship. And I want you to write down verse 23 and verse 25. And as you write down verse 23, I want you to go back to the end of verse 23 where Paul says, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Notice that Paul is saying that his stewardship, his ministry was given to him by God. It has been received. You hear what Paul is saying? Paul didn't get up one morning and decide, hey, I think I want to go into the Christian ministry. I think I'm going to launch out on a new vocation. I've been a rabbi in Judaism. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up today and I'm, I'm going to change things and I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to be apostle. I'm, I'm going to have a vocational change. Did Paul decide that? Absolutely not. He was called to it. 
It was given to him. You can go back to Acts chapter 9 and you can read all about Paul's conversion. Paul did not wake up that morning with the intent of becoming a Christian. In fact, just the opposite was the case. He set out for Damascus that day with the intent of going there and finding Christians, arresting them and dragging them back to Jerusalem where they could be put on trial and some of them perhaps put to death. But we know what happened. Jesus Christ appeared to Paul. And Paul was gloriously saved. I want you to read Paul's own testimony before King Agrippa of what happened to him that day. Find Acts chapter 26 in your Bible. Acts 26 and I want to begin reading for you in verse 2. And we're going to read all the way down through verse 18 at least. But beginning there in verse 2, he says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg of you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived as a Pharisee and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I am accused by you, uh, by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see what all Paul is pointing out there, folks? Paul is pointing out that both his salvation and his call as an apostle were received by him from God. 
It's not something he engineered in his own life. It was brought about by God as a gift from God. Folks, we are not born again by our own will, but by God's will. Jesus said so in John 1, 11 and 12. We're not born again by the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but we are born of God. Salvation is a gift from God given to us and likewise it is God who gives each of us our respective ministries. At the moment of your new birth you are given two things. You are given the Holy Spirit of the living God who is the seal of your conversion. Ephesians 1.13 Not only were you given the gift of the Holy Spirit but you were given a spiritual gift a spiritual gift that you didn't determine what it was going to be Paul is very clear of this in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians God gave you the gift that he designed for you to have and to use for the good of his body You've received both of those, your salvation and your ministry with your spiritual gift. You didn't pick it out. You didn't do it. It's God's work of grace in you. Paul says in verse 25 that he was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. I honestly wonder if we look at our Christian service that way. Folks, it is a stewardship from God. You have received it from God and I have received it from God myself. It is a sacred trust. You know, when, you're, when, when you get discouraged in your service or you decide that maybe you're just going to take some time off from the ministry, remember it is a stewardship that has been given to you by God. You and I truly don't have the right to simply decide when we will serve, how we will serve, and if we will even serve. Your Christian service and ministry is a stewardship. Remember what Paul said about that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9? He said, if I preach, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Now the word stewardship translates a compound word made up of the word for a house and the word for a manager or to manage. And so you put them together and you have a house manager. In ancient times, especially those who were more wealthy would have a steward over their house. They would have a manager of their household and oftentimes this manager of their household was entrusted not only with the operation of the household but even with the education of their kids. And this would free the homeowner up to be able to travel the world or engage in other pursuits. But he would have a steward. 
He would have a steward to whom he had given a sacred trust. It was a sacred trust. It was a high honor, but also it was a position of great responsibility. And Paul says that's what God has given him with the ministry. Paul sought no glory for himself whatsoever in the ministry. I wonder what he would say today of some of these preachers who fly around the world in their own private jets and build multi, multi, multi-million dollar mansions. I wonder what Paul would say about that. You ever think about that? Paul said he had a stewardship from God. And he said in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 25 about his stewardship. It was given to him for their benefit. Your ministry that you have received is not for you. It is for the sake of others. Notice what Paul said his stewardship was. He was to preach the gospel and he was to preach the mystery that had been hidden from ages past. Now what in the world is he talking about? We don't have to guess about it because he goes on to tell us. He was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ and that God has included Gentiles in God's redemptive plan. He writes a lot more about that in Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 3. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. Folks, that's the ministry Paul received. Again, it was a stewardship to preach the gospel to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles may know that in Christ God has included them in his redemptive plan. Just like the Apostle Paul, I want you to understand that you've received a ministry too that's a stewardship before God. Are you living your life as a steward? Your salvation is by God's grace. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. When God called you and saved you in Christ, you're not responsible for your salvation. God did it. 
You're not responsibility, responsible for your ministry or your spiritual gift. God did it all. How are you living your life? Are you and I living our lives as a steward before God, as somebody who will one day stand before the Bema seat of Christ and give an account? You've been given a stewardship. Then Paul goes on to describe the ministry in another uh, term here. He uses the phrase of service. We've received a ministry that involves service. He says in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. The word for minister here is the word diakonos. Very common word in the Greek New Testament. A diakonos, a servant. A minister. Diakonos is used in two senses in the New Testament. There's an official sense that includes with it a position. And then there's a more generic sense that's used of every single Christian. The office of a diakonos is what? It's a deacon. A deacon. A deacon is a servant of God and a servant to the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul lists what the qualifications of a deacon are. And we've just elected a new group of men to be deacons, to be a diakonos. That's the more formal use of the term. But then there's a generic use of the term that applies to every Christian. We're all servants. We're to all be a diakonos. And we've been given this to us by God. And Paul goes on to say, I'm a servant. That's all I am. A minister is a servant. And the emphasis is that he serves at the pleasure of another. And he's lowly and he's humble. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus defined Christian service by saying, He who wants to be great must be the last of all and the servant of all. A servant isn't out to make a name for himself or herself. Jesus gave a great example of service in John chapter 13. Remember what happened in John 13? Jesus has just finished his public ministry. He's gone into the upper room with his disciples where he will be until they leave the upper room. He goes to the garden. He's arrested, put on trial, crucified, and then rises again. But they've gone to the upper room and Jesus is with his disciples there. And at that point, somebody should have washed their feet. Households would have a servant to do that. Because you see, you walked back then on dusty roads and you had open sandals. And so you would get into a household and you'd have dirty feet and there would be a lowly servant who would take a a basin of water and a towel and would wash everybody's feet. One of the disciples should have done that, but nobody's done that. So what happens? Jesus takes the basin of water and the towel, girds the towel about his waist, kneels before his disciples, and he washes their feet. And he said, I've given you an example of what you are to do for others. And he said, you'll be blessed if you do this. 
You won't just be blessed by the knowing that you ought to do it. You'll be blessed by actually doing it. And then remember again in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, they're on their way to Capernaum. They, uh, we're told that the disciples were debating among themselves which of them was the greatest among them. They get inside the house and Jesus says, what were you debating about on the way? And they were silent. William Barclay calls it the silence of shame. Jesus knew what they were debating. And Jesus said, listen, you want to be great? You need to be the last of all and the servant of all. And he did something that has puzzled some commentators, but I don't think it should. He takes a child and he sets the child before them. Now it seems like he's kind of mixing metaphors, but I don't think so at all. What he's saying to them, I believe, with the example of the child, is the way that you would serve a child is the way you are to serve, period. Nobody would serve a child thinking the child is going to be able to give them some monetary reward in return. Children don't have the capability of doing that. And so when you serve a child, you're serving just out of the pure joy of serving, not expecting anything in return. And Jesus said, guys, you want to be great? That's what you need to do. You need to put yourself the last of all and servant of all. Folks, Christian ministry is about serving. Whatever God's called you to do in the local church, you're to do it with an attitude of service. Humility and lowliness. Doing it for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ alone. You're a steward. You've been given this ministry and you're you're to carry it out with an attitude of servanthood. How are you doing at that? Well, thirdly, Paul goes on to say here in verse 24 that we have received a ministry that involves suffering. Nobody wants to talk about that, do we? Look at what verse 24 says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now you know a lot of times at the end of the service when we're dismissed there's lobbies out there, there's tables out there in the lobby and we have sign up sheets for various things. If we had one of those tables today with the sign-up sheet for all of those who want to suffer, you know what? I bet there would not be a single name on that list, would there? Nobody would sign up for suffering. Because nobody wants to suffer. But the New Testament makes it clear that if we live an authentic Christian life and carry out an authentic Christian ministry, somewhere, sometime, and in some way, we'll suffer. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all of those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Have you ever suffered for your faith? 
Paul gives a phrase here that I think deserves some explanation. He says, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now don't misunderstand what he's saying here. Christ's suffering for sin was done. It is finished. He said from the cross, tetelestai. It is finished. You and I can't complete that in any way. Christ did it all. Amen? However, as the gospel goes out into the world, there is a continuing suffering that takes place. The church suffers. It is the suffering of Christ because, again, we are joined to Him and He to us. Every blow against us is intended as a blow at Christ. If Christ were still on the earth in the flesh, men would still be persecuting Him. But because He's not here in the flesh, the world persecutes His followers who are still here in the flesh. And so in that sense, the suffering of Christ continues. And also remember, the church is the body of Christ. When the church suffers, Christ suffers. He identifies with us. Remember what he said to Paul on the road to Damascus. Why do you persecute me? Saul was persecuting the church. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He identifies with us in our suffering. So Paul says, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I do my share. Are you and I doing our share? Paul didn't suffer begrudgingly either. Notice what he says here. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now I want you to remember, as Paul is writing to the Colossians, where is he? He's in prison. And why is he in prison? Is he suffering in prison because he's a criminal? No. All he's done is preach the gospel. And he's been locked up because of that. Paul was pleased that he could suffer for the sake of those to whom he preached the gospel to. If suffering is what it took for Paul to get the gospel out to the Gentiles, then guess what? Paul says, I rejoice that I've got the opportunity to suffer. If the end result of my suffering is going to be that the name of Christ goes out to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, it's like Paul is saying, then I'm, I'm more than willing to do that. I'll do my share, bring it on. Because I know through my suffering that Christ is going to be magnified. That's why he said to the Philippians, I'm ready to live or die. Whatever God has in mind for me. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul wasn't worried about his own life. He was worried about the gospel. Now folks, as we think about all that, those are convicting words, are they not? How much suffering are you willing to do to get the gospel out? 
Would you take your family to a foreign mission field knowing that it was possible in that foreign place that you might not make it out alive? If you say that you would not do that, are you saying that you hold your life too dear? It's something to think about, is it not? Some men would say, oh, I would do that myself, but I'm not going to subject my family to dangers like that. Are you kidding me? Do you let your family go out to the shopping mall every week or go to school? If you're saying you're not going to subject your family to to possible dangers? Folks, look at what's going on in schools across America. at shopping malls, at concerts, at these big venues where crowds are gathered. It's not necessarily safe anymore. You will be safer in the will of God than you will anywhere else. Amen? What does it say in the modern church when we can't even get people to serve oftentimes right here in their very own context because they want to have the luxury of having their weekends free? I'm just throwing out some questions to think about. Maybe, just maybe, we're not quite as biblical as sometimes we fancy ourselves to be. We take on commitments and we don't see them through. Or we don't take on commitments at all oftentimes. Why? Because our life in some way might be inconvenienced. Does that mean that we're putting our conveniences and our luxuries ahead of the gospel? Folks, let's remember this ministry we have received may in fact at some point involve suffering. Read Hebrews 11 sometime, the great chapter, the the hall of faith. What's Hebrews 11 point out? The Old Testament prophets suffered. You turn to the Gospels and you see in the Gospels the Lord Jesus himself suffered. You read on in your New Testament and you see that the New Testament apostles suffered. Do we think in this generation in the American church that we're not supposed to suffer? Are we saying we're better than Elijah, better than Jeremiah, better than Isaiah, better than the Lord Jesus himself? I took a little heat recently for changing my position on eschatology. I now believe that the church is going to go through the tribulation. We won't be raptured out until the end. We'll still be raptured out, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. We'll be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. But it'll be we who make the U-turn, not Christ. You see, in a pre-trib format, we're raptured up, meet the Lord in the air. He makes the U-turn, we go back for seven years. The word is never used that way. 
It's always used. A party goes out to meet the dignitary. The the party is the one who makes the U-turn and comes back. We'll be raptured up to meet the Lord in the air. We'll turn around and come back down. What's that mean? That means that we've we've already been through the tribulation. Some wanted to know how in the world I could have changed my position on that just by studying it more, more intently over the past year or two. Diving into a lot more studies about that. But my point is, why do we think we're supposed to be raptured out before tribulation and not have to go through any tribulation? Why do we think we're supposed to be spared suffering? All of the saints of God have suffered. Our ministry that we have may indeed involve suffering. Remember what Paul said as we carry out our ministry. To some we will be as an aroma of life. To others we will be as an aroma of death. To those to whom we are the aroma of death. They might turn on us and oppose us and persecute us. And we might have to suffer. Our ministry may involve suffering. And you and I, I believe, we will see the day that that will increase. Are you ready for that? You've been given a ministry that involves stewardship. It involves servanthood. And it may indeed involve suffering. If you're not suffering now, just hang on. It might come. Now before we close out today, look at verse 28. What is the sum of our ministry to be? What's it all to be about? Paul says in verse 28, Him we proclaim, that is Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Warning, teaching. Warning is a negative word. Teaching, positive. Our our ministry is we're discipling people with the uh, goal, end goal of being to present them complete in Christ. There's the warning, there's the teaching, the negative and the positive. It's like what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 about preaching the gospel. Some of our preaching is encouraging and uplifting and some of our preaching is to be rebuking and correcting. It's both and. It's not either or. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, I hope you wouldn't want to come to church every week where you just heard a sermon that was all, everything's all positive and everything's all good. Likewise, you wouldn't want to come to church every week and hear a sermon where you were being beat over the head all the time with a hammer, right? We need both encouragement and rebuke. It's both. Paul says as as we're discipling people. You see we evangelize. Of course we evangelize but that's not the end goal. The end goal is discipleship where men and women and boys and girls are presented complete before Christ. And, and, And in that process we warn, we rebuke, we correct with all long suffering and patience and we encourage and we upbuild. We do both, right? 
And look at the beautiful way Paul closes out in verse 29. He says, for this I toil. The word for toil here, labor, as your translation says, it's a word that means he toiled or he labored to the very point of exhaustion. Struggling with all of his energy, Christ's energy, that powerfully works within me. I am laboring to the point of exhaustion, but I know that it's Christ's power in me that allows me to keep going and doing what I'm doing. Isn't that great? It's not by our strength. It's not by our power. He's the source of it. He's the subject of our ministry. We proclaim Him and He's the source of it. We do what we do through His strength. And Paul says, I'm laboring, I'm toiling to the point of exhaustion to do this. I want to ask you this morning, what drives your life? What are you laboring for? What are you toiling for? Sometimes we'd have to say we're guilty of toiling for things that have no eternal value whatsoever to them. And you know what? Before the Bema seat of Christ one day, those things are going to be wood, hay, and stubble. It's not going to count for anything. Is that what you're laboring for? Is that what you're striving for? Things of this world that have no eternal value whatsoever. Don't waste your life. You were made and you were saved for higher purposes than that. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Toil for things that will last. Things that will be silver and gold at the Bema seat of Christ. What are you striving for? What are you laboring for? What's your ministry look like? Are you being faithful as a steward? Are you carrying out your stewardship with a servant's heart? Are you willing to suffer if suffering is on God's agenda for your life? What are you striving for? Father, we thank you for these words about Christian ministry. A New Testament biblical look at Christian ministry. Lord, ministry is not what we fancy it to be oftentimes. Sometimes people want to romanticize it. But Lord, we know in reality it can be blood, sweat, and tears. May we be found faithful. And if we're one who is guilty of living for lesser things, forgive us. May we repent of that and turn to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.